You're listening to Episode 9 of Partnerships and Possibilities, a podcast on leadership. In this episode, Power and Politics. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Diana. And we're going to be talking about leadership in organizations. Leadership in organization happens at all levels and takes many forms. You know, there's it's a very interesting thing to think about. In, in terms of leadership and the conversations we've been having about leadership, about the role of power and politics in organizations and in just human dynamics, human interactions in general, mm-hmm. and how, you know, the... the um, The researchers tell us that in every interaction, every human interaction, there is some degree of power at play. Mm-hmm. And and that men and women often, in general, think about power differently. Yeah, yeah. But we all have to deal with politics, and we all have to deal with the organizational politics. And a couple of years ago... Um, I know both of us were very interested in the work of Robert Marshak mm-hmm. and his uh, ideas around, and the book he wrote around covert processes at work. Right. Uh-huh. And when I was in his workshop, um, one of the things that he talked about, and I think he writes about it in the book, is that we tend to think about politics and power as kind of a dirty secret. Oh, yeah, uh, You sure. know, that it's it's the... It's the part of organizations that, you know, is a little bit unsavory and none of us really want to think about it and so on. And he had worked a lot in government, as as both of us have worked with government right. agencies. Right. And his point was that politics really is just the way we get things done. It's the networks, it's the interactions, it's the who talks to who it's the who influences who, and I know we're going to do a future podcast about influence. And so in all of that, in all of that, how do we get things done? What are the politics? What's the, I really wish we had looked up the Greek root of that word. I'm sure one of our listeners will know it off the top of their head. But that idea that this is the, it's a it's an unspoken governance structure. You know, it is just how we get things done. And that power relates to that in the sense of um, our ability to move people, it, it, um, ourselves and others. And who can who is best able to move whom? <laughs> And to what degree is that linked to uh, titles and roles in organizations, sort of formalized ones? Power and politics are mostly happening at the very informal, implicit level. Right. Whereas right. titles and roles are much more at the explicit level, but they they all link together right. quite and tightly. You, you can have people who have a title and are enacting a role and essentially are powerless or or the reverse so so we tend to assume that that um 
people who are in a in a given role or whatever are are automatically have power and they do have some power mm-hmm. uh power to compel or coerce or power but, over budget or power over budget right yeah. but that isn't really usually the the real source of power mm-hmm. um and and I remember um, that Marshak talked about um, in any organization that uh, if you if you believe that organizations are not simply rational entities, which I totally doesn't believe, require a huge <laughs> leap, leap of not a big leap of faith, right? <laughs> that that there are issues of power and politics at play. And in fact, he he defines politics as the process of people using power to achieve their preferred outcomes. Um, and so people have to sometimes think about, in order to come to an agreement, what what is a good outcome, if not the best outcome mm-hmm. from their point of view, in order to get things done. Mm-hmm. Would that our Congress would learn this lesson could <laughs> right. be could be interesting, um, but he also talked about the the idea that um, in change efforts, if we think about a change effort as essentially uh, only a rational and linear process, that we're really missing a big source of. Um, information, vitality, and in fact, that it will, if we, if we simply deal with it as a rational process, we will set up forces of people pushing against what they see as uh, power. Um, They'll come right back at it. So that we have to use the, um, the political um, and power notions to inform how we accomplish how change. we accomplish change mm-hmm. yeah that 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 each informs the other right well and power and politics both are so reliant on the quality of the relationship if if i am a leader my power and the way i handle the politics around me in an organization are so reliant on the relationships that i have created and my ability to to uh, function in those relationships and tap into sources of information, sources of help and support, um, all those kinds of things that come from the working relationships I've set up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that gets, some people know that. Yeah. Some people know that very clearly. Yeah. Some people don't share that um, understanding. And I mean, I know that there are, in organizations that I've been in, there have been people who hoard information, for instance, right? because they believe that's a source of power if they're the only person that someone could come to for particular information. Or expertise. Or expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, I have also seen people hoard their relationships hmm. in the sense of... Um, being very protective of them and, you know, not letting other people sort of 
into the loop into the loop or um, have access right. maybe to m right more senior folks or have more a or have mm -hmm. access to certain people yeah. if that has to yeah. go through them um and i think that it's very interesting to think about that in light of what we're learning about networks you know it's like moving away from that hub and spoke yeah. i'm at the center and i have all these relationships but i don't encourage those people to have relationships with each other because as long as i'm the hub everything has to come through me and that gives me a certain kind of power right as opposed to setting up that network of people where they're all all everybody has a relationship with everybody else and there are certain right. nodes in that where people come together you but know, there's no nothing has to go through somewhere. yeah yeah you know you know that re that reminds me just as you were talking about that that reminds me about uh how some people even kind of do their social life yeah. think about it there are people that we know all of us i'm sure who are the kind of people who love to bring diverse sets of friends together, have them get to know each other, and isn't threatened by the fact that, well, gee, those people might become friends yeah. on their own and not include me, right. versus the kind of person who... Um, Feel, begins to feel left out. Yeah, 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 and keeps everything very separate, mm -hmm. very separate. Um, Compartmentalized yeah. social circles. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, I think that happens in organizations, too, because whoever we are, we bring to our organization. However we do our interactions, right. uh, we do that in our organizations. You think? Yeah. And so, <laughs> so that's a, I mean, that's a, an interesting a way of thinking about, uh, say, work style. Yes. That I that I haven't seen pop up in Myers-Briggs or Hogan or, you know, well, you or know, the, any of the, a lot of the different work style or personality type instruments and, and report outs. They don't very much talk about that. No, and I guess part of the reason I'm so aware of it is that um, be, my best friend Sandy, who you know, um, people often ask us, uh, how did you two meet? And because we've been friends for mm -hmm. 15, 16 years, something like that. And we do a lot of social things together. Um, we, actually, without our spouses, we just, like, she's my art fair companion, mm -hmm. typically, unless sometimes you come too. Yeah, but right. but um, people often ask us, how did we meet? And we are both very clear we were introduced by a mutual friend. And over time, we actually became closer than either of us were with this other friend. And so, I mean... She was a good matchmaker, huh? She was a good matchmaker. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I give her full credit for doing that. Um, but, but it's kind of interesting because that was her style. She always brought diverse groups of people together. And um, I know other people that have met or met in that way through her. And it was all good as mm -hmm. far as she was concerned. It yeah. made her happy. 
Well, it, and that reminds me, at the organizational level, that reminds me of uh, an organization that I've had the opportunity to work, to do some consulting in a few different times over the course of years. Uh -huh. um, and most recently, I was helping them with an agile adoption. Uh -huh. And they have a very clear leadership development model that includes people that they believe are good candidates to be managers in their organization or who are already managers that make sure they are cycling through many different parts of the organization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they're so that their their management development or leadership development might take them on a couple of lateral moves before it takes them on a right up the organizational ladder move right. to a few more lateral moves so that they have the broadest possible network yes. in that organization yes. and understanding of the context yes. of a lot of folks in that organization. And I think that's a very, I, over, the, over the years, m my observation of that has been that it's a very wise move on yeah, their I agree. part. I agree. And it creates a different kind of power and politics in that organization than I might see in an, that organization happens to be a utility that I might see in another utility that mm -hmm. is much more um, concerned about silos right. and hierarchy within silos. Right. And I just think that's, I think that's quite interesting. Their one, um, I think, thing that trips them up is that they still reward people and give titles based on how many direct reports you have and so people do get in the game of how many direct reports can I collect yeah and uh, that gets a little bit in the way of creating cross-functional work teams you because bet. that cross-functionality certainly muddies those waters quite yeah. a bit but I think they're working through it and and I think because they've they have this Every manager, every supervisor and manager in that organization has this broader view if they've been there for any length of time. Uh -huh. I think it becomes easier to work through some of those other kinds of problems. Yeah. Yeah. We, it, at United Airlines, actually, that concept was, was in place in the 70s. That mm -hmm. was the way uh, our management development program was structured. That for the high what we call the high potentials, mm -hmm. otherwise known as the crown princes, yeah. um, and there were and no I, crown princesses, I'm sure. No, not early on. <laughs> By the time yeah. I left, there were one or two, but yeah, they <laughs> were in the minority. Yeah, but but that was the idea that that high potentials should be rotated through a number of key parts of the organization, so that mm -hmm. they had some familiarity. And contacts. And the relationships. Right. They and had the opportunity. When they needed stuff, they yeah. knew people, they knew who to right. call. Of course, that can carry with it its, its own set of problems because just that idea of identifying the high potentials. Right away. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it, but that's another story. Right. Um, so, but that kind of brings us back to the whole idea that, you know, in a system... Everything's connected to everything. Right. And you cannot um, just pull out uh, um, an idea or a, or a pattern or a change or whatever without it having 
some ramifications somewhere else. Right. And then it becomes a task to figure out what's in the overall best interests and how to maybe mitigate against mm -hmm. some of the um, some of the downsides. Yeah. But uh, you know, to think that you can just put programs in place or do anything right. in an organization without without the countervailing forces, in essence, right. power kind of pushing back in some way right. is not yeah. very realistic. Because everyone, this I think a thing that largely goes unacknowledged, um, it reminds me of Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, you know, it's a it's a fact widely known that every woman is looking, that a, a man with a certain fortune is looking for a wife, right? It goes, it, it, it's widely known, but sometimes unacknowledged, that everyone in an organization is working from some power base, some level of power. It's, I may have only have power over whether I get my work done on time and hand off to you, whether I'm withholding right. or generous with my expertise or my information you know, that may be the level of power I have. Um, and it's also linked then to the relationships that I've created. Um, but everyone in every organization has power. And I think what trips up some change efforts is the assumption that only a few people have the power to make the change. And nobody else is going to have any power to bring to bear. Whereas, you know, right. the idea to say... Uh, uh, I'm not going there is within everybody's grasp. Right. Right. And so that's where the idea, I think, of politics comes in. Mm -hmm. So how do we manage those power dynamics to get things done? How do we be clear about who has what kinds of power and what does that mean about uh, the flow of resources, the flow of information, the who we bring together into a room, who has standing right. in certain decisions. Who, right, exactly. Who makes yeah. what decisions about what. Right, and yeah. who really should be at the table. Who really is going to be valuable to be at the table. I think, I think there are folks who don't give that enough thought. I have seen that there are folks who don't so give that enough thought. Let's, let's push back a little bit more on that notion of standing. Because yeah. I remember when we were working on that large... Mm -hmm project a number of years ago and we suddenly came to that realization that and this was a real aha for both of us anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that everyone in that organization thought they had what we came to call standing mm -hmm. I, I don't know we, we probably should explain what we mean yeah. by that right. but but we when we came to that aha that everyone seemed to think that they they Should had a voice have... in every decision. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it had anything to do with them or their work or not. Right. Yeah. And it was it was astounding yeah. because of the 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 kind of time and energy it took to get anything done. Um, it was making the organization so incredibly uh, bureaucratic and slowed down. And mm -hmm. When we began to talk with people about the issue of standing and what does standing mean and who has standing on what kind of decisions, 
you would have thought we were taking the the kids' toys away. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to be the only way in that organization that people felt they could exercise power, and it was largely veto power. Yeah. Right. 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 So, well, and so anyone who had an opinion about anything also felt they had a right to voice that opinion and be a part of the decision about it. Yeah. Whether it impacted their work or their working relationships or even had any kind of long-term impact on them at all. And, or whether they were a stakeholder in the classic sense of, can I affect or am I affected by this? Um, they... Yeah, people just felt like, because I have thoughts about what you're <laughs> getting ready to do, you need to include me. And and it tangled people up yeah. so much. They had, I mean, it, it sucked up enormous amounts of people's time going right. to all these different right. meetings. People complain a lot in organizations about how many meetings they have to go to. I wonder how much they think about, how many of these meetings am I really needed at? How many of these meetings... Is the outcome really going to affect me or in my daily work, will I affect how it happens? And if, if one of those isn't true, I probably shouldn't be at this meeting. So do you think that people's, um, uh, need to go, to go that route comes more from a sense of needing to feel important, um, yeah, where, where does that come from? I think it came from a, a number of different sources. I think there were I think there were the folks that it made them feel more important the more meetings they got to go to. Um, I think there were a certain number of folks in that organization that, well, paranoia might be too strong a word, but that were really worried mm-hmm. that somebody would go off and make a decision that would have a negative impact on them, mm-hmm. whether it was kind of in their realm or not. That so somehow or another, they didn't trust. They them? didn't trust. It was mm-hmm. a lack of trust in mm-hmm. the organization. I think they got there by that. I also remember that that was an organization that, at the time, we characterized as having a be nice to each other culture, Mm -hmm. that everything was predicated on sort of being nice on Mm -hmm. the surface. And so I think that there was this, well, the way you be nice is you include everybody. Right, and, right, and right, the way, right. And then the way you be nice back is if someone's included you, you show up. Yeah. And you don't really think very much about, do I really need to be there or don't I really need to be there? It was just that it was that whole inclusion thing. Yeah. And which we could have another whole podcast on. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think there were a bunch of different reasons why that kind of came to be. Mm-hmm. And it was a government agency. So it was highly politically charged. In any case, mm-hmm. um, and I think that you know that context, that greater whole of the the eight, the larger department, governmental department that it existed in, that agency it existed in, um, had also an influence. And people cycled in and out. Uh, if you remember, there were some folks who were located uh, in the in the headquarters, but then there were also folks who cycled in and out from various other related agencies in Washington, D.C. So there were there was this interesting kind of cultural mix that came um, 
that, that also had an influence, I think. Because mm -hmm. players changed to some degree. So in the recent uh, work that you've done, give me, give me an example of a, of a manager or a leader in that organization um, the way they use power, uh, does something come to mind? Do you have a good story about that? Well, a couple of them come to mind. I, th I think there's, there's one, a, a manager in sort of second level manager, um, reported to the CIO, mm -hmm. um, and he the managers who reported to him, that group of folks, um, they're the folks I've talked about before who ended up forming themselves into kind of a cross-functional management, management team. team. Mm -hmm. And But before that happened, um, they were looking to him a lot for um, to tell them kind of what was okay and what wasn't okay and what direction they were going. And he was a much more participatory leader than that, uh, participative leader than that. He, he really wanted them to take charge of some of their own decisions and not feel like they had to come to him for everything. And so he was a great part of what ended up causing them to create this cross-functional team because he, while he wanted to be involved, he was really interested in what was going on in the Agile adoption. He really wanted to be involved. He also saw that he needed to, in some instances, step away uh -huh. and just say, you folks have to come up with this. You, you have to figure this out. And I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to support whatever it is you do. And I saw him do that a number of times. And I think it was really interesting use of power because it it was very choiceful. They were going to do what he told them to do in any case. So he could have just been very directive. But he chose to use his sort of directive capacity to say, you figure it out, right? And I will support you. And to be very clear about that. Um, at one point, they even wanted him, they wanted to designate him as sort of the product owner, product ma yeah. manager of their, as a cross-functional management team, their output. Mm -hmm. And it became clear to us that that wouldn't really work. Because? Because um, in, a, in, a, in a software development team, the product owner is there because they have the product vision and they need to, um, they are the ones talking with the team about what to build and all the, those kinds of things. And if he had that role with his management team, they would respond to him as if he were direct, you know, if he were dictating. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to, them to develop more than that. So he wanted them to make more of their own decisions. Mm -hmm. So they had to figure out a different way to handle that. I don't, offhand, I'm not remembering exactly what that was, but mm -hmm. they had to figure out a different way to handle that. He could not be their scrum master. Mm -hmm. He could not be their product owner. Right. He had to, he had a different role to play. And, um, and they figured that all out. 
And and so his we actually wrote a Cutter IT journal article about that called Teamwork Required. Uh-huh. And about uh-huh. how they had to manage because it's such a highly matrixed organization. Yeah. And do you think that 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 was driven primarily by his personality or was it driven by his understanding of the process that was going on or some combination, you know, that, that he I, yeah, I think it, that. it was both. It was both. He, he, uh, by the time I was working with him, he had been in the organization a couple of years, uh-huh. but, and the organization that he came from had, uh, done a lot of lean transformation. And so he was very familiar with the lean concepts and what that meant for managers uh-huh. And so when he came into this organization and they were doing this agile adoption, he was able to just translate translate Mm -hmm. that understanding. Mm -hmm. And I also think that he is naturally a very um, skilled and relational leader. Mm -hmm. And so that who he, who he is in himself also supported that kind of yeah, so it was it wasn't a big struggle for stewardship him. Stewardship form of leadership right. as opposed to directive leadership. Right. Right. He's right. very much into creating a leaderful organization, as we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts. Yeah. That that he knew that he couldn't have it all be on his shoulders. And oh, the good would news, there would there be yeah. more like him? Well, and the good news was that his boss, the CIO in that organization, mm-hmm had leanings that way as well. Yeah. So th- that whole piece worked very well together. And they had a long history of working together. So uh-huh. in a number of organizations. Yeah. So great. Yeah. So I'm wondering uh, for our listeners, um, what kinds of power and politics they see and what comments they might make about yeah. pow- how they see the uses of power and the uses of politics in a good way yeah. in their organizations. Yeah. Yeah, because so often what we hear about is really only when it's the bad way. Yeah, and... power and politics gone horribly wrong. Right. 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 And, and there really are very good and positive uses of both. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. Please leave a comment on our blog or email us, leadershippodcast at gmail.com. This has been Episode 9 of Partnerships and Possibilities, a podcast on leadership. Thanks for listening.